Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 148 is David Cross, famous for his violin playing in King Crimson. You're right now hearing Exiles from their 1973 album Lark's Tongues in Aspic. He has since recorded eight albums under his own name, plus numerous collaborations. We'll be discussing Predator by... Cross and Jackson, that is David Jackson from Fandograph Generator, from the 2018 album Another Day, then The Pool from the most recent David Cross Band album Sign of the Crow 2016, and looking back to Awful Love from his album Closer Than Skin 2005. We'll conclude by listening to Crossover by David Cross and Peter Banks, which is the title track from Crossover, recorded in 2010, released just last year. For more information, please see davidcrossband.com more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And to support what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will play a little bit of Exiles from King Crimson's Lark's Tongues in Aspic 1973 to kind of orient folks. But I want to get us pretty quickly to your newer stuff. Maybe we can get a little into the progression here. Of course, you're on those two albums by King Crimson, had written a little for Red as well. And then there's a jump to about 1987 before your first low-flying aircraft. And then a while after that, before you the David Cross band. And then it's been, you know, a pretty consistent pattern of releases, often with the same folks, but then a lot of collaborations as well. Can you say anything about that little journey, that doing the Crimson thing and taking the break and then getting back into it? Yeah, I wasn't taking a break. I just became invisible. Ah. But um, I, I still existed and was very busy. But you had started teaching, right? Somewhere in there? My background before Crimson was I trained as a teacher. I trained as a teacher of music and I trained as a teacher of drama as well. That had worked very well for me in terms of music, actually. But I had always been interested in acting and theatre as well. So anyway, I did some classes, did some more training as an actor and worked as an actor for a while. So I did theatre work. I became involved in community theatre and wrote music for that. I was actually very busy, and the transition to teaching all happened kind of out of my composition work. You know, basically, I wrote some music for a community um, theatre production, and I was paid for it, and the director kind of signed it off, and then I got a call from her the next day saying, you know, thanks very much for the music you delivered. You know, it looks great, but nobody in the band can read music, so could you come and teach them how to play it? So that was how I, I started teaching, although I was qualified to do it. I'd never actually done it until that point. And that's how I kind of got into education. That was around when? 79, 80, probably. Okay. And then that moved back to doing more music or at least having your name at the top of a project. 1989 is the first David Cross official album. Yeah, I was in stuff before that, but it was I was doing kind of improvised music and nobody wanted to release any of that. I mean, I did, but <laughs> nobody... Nobody else did. Couldn't sell it, you know, for love or money. 
I'd also got interested in learning how to play jazz. So I played in the bebop jazz band where I was just there learning, really. And um, then I formed my own band. And gradually that kind of transitioned into something that was more listenable, I suppose, than the free improvisation I've been doing. And um, that gradually became visible from low-frying aircraft onwards, yeah. So, yes, I, I regained my visibility about that time. But I was busy as hell, actually. Well, you've got a flood of releases within the 2016 to 2018 range. We're going to talk about the most recent full band album, which is officially a Cross and Jackson album, but it's you and Mick Paul on bass and Craig Blundell on drums. So the core of your David Cross band with David Jackson from Vandergraaf Generator, the famous sax player from there. Can you say a little about the song Predator before we hear this and, and the album that is from Another Day? Well, this is the opening track, and it certainly gives you a feel of what we were up to. I'm very proud of it, and I think it uh, gets across exactly our state of mind on that day. Predator.
All right, so this intro, I couldn't actually even tell. It's so affected whether this was violin or sax doing strange noises before we kick in. Uh, that's violin, yeah. I, I worked very hard on that. <laughs> <laughs> it has the squeakiness of a lot of what David Jackson is known for, but there's definite bowing sounds in there somewhere. I'll try to give grit to it, yeah. Yes, and then we have the main Middle Eastern-sounding riff with layered saxes, which I know, so I assume he just overdubbed a lot on the recording as opposed to live where he has to use a harmonizer or something. Yeah, it was great. He he stacked it at home. It started off as a thing called playing in fifths, I think. I found it the other day, which was a little sketch I sent to him where where I mapped out the sections and the tune and the rhythms on violin. I just did a a rough of it. He really liked it, went for it with his saxes, so he created all the lovely um, sax parts that are in there. And he kind of gave it some shape, actually, which is something he's really good at. I'm very good at scrappy bits of paper and inspiring ideas that kind of go nowhere, but he's very good at getting them organised. And then we got together, we, we looked at what he'd done, played around with it a little bit more, and when we were confident the shape was right, we took it into the studio and we put bass and drums on at that stage. So we'd framed it out before Craig and Mick came in. So that includes the like drop beats, the, you know, the time changes. That was all worked out beforehand and they, they just listened to it and adapted to that very fast. So, you know, they played in the studio and they did a fantastic job with it. I mean, they were brilliant all the way through this because we did a couple of things together, but most of the stuff was kind of prepared in that way or improvised and they were just kind of dumped into it. And their empathy was extraordinary. When we were improvising, sometimes the bass player, Mick and David, just sort of moved to the same note together, you know, out of the blue. Nothing obvious. They just ended up in the same place. So there was a lot of magic to that. It was all done on a shoestring. There wasn't a lot of money around. So we, you know, weren't using expensive studios and things got lost and had to be found again, as they do in, sometimes in studios. But anyway, they put it together. And then David and I then went back into the studio and we were then going to do solos on the top of this. We were getting ready to do that, and I just, I had an album called Starless Starlight that was just about to come out, and while I was in the studio, and my wife had taken delivery of the Starless Starlight albums, and we were putting out a radio edit as well, a single, and all these albums had arrived, delivered on time, but with the wrong label on. They were all labelled as the single instead of the album. So I was absolutely furious about that. I didn't know what to do, and I had to get back to the studio again, got back there an absolutely foul state of mind, terribly angry. And we were then trying to get in these solos. And then we started talking about what we might do. And I just feel like shouting and screaming. And so we said, well, maybe we could use that. And somebody said, well, you, you know, something about ancient musicians. So we realised they were talking about us as dinosaurs. And we, then we got into this idea that we could maybe do a battle of the dinosaurs. You know, Jackson and Cross, these ancient musicians fighting it out. So that's what we went for. We kind of imagined the dinosaurs approaching each other and trying to fight their way out. And all of that kind of anger and edgy stuff there emerged from that. So it was all the result, really, of a mistake by a CD manufacturing company that triggered an enormous amount of anger that we were actually able to channel into something that, that I really like, that I think is really powerful and, and a very strong piece. So that's how Predator came about. So when you're talking about layering the solos on there, are you talking mostly about that middle section where it stays on the same chord? Or is it It's sort of throughout? All that stuff at the beginning was all fury. <laughs> that, was, that was all how dare they, how could they, how stupid can they be, la la la. So clearly in that main dud, dud, 
dot, 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 that he's, you know, layered four different saxes on, but you're still finding a place to like squeak and be on the side and kind of, you know, it's this very organized thing, but then improvising over that, that's a strange, interesting combination. We went for that quite a lot in, the, in that album. You're trying to put those kind of things together. The idea that something's kind of somewhere you can get your foot in, somewhere you can hang on to and listen to and want to listen to. So the idea of organising a lot of it and then having a lot of it very disorganised and really quite out there was what we were trying to do. You know, we didn't want to be completely, you know, unlistenable. On the other hand, we didn't want to be completely predictable either. And so we were trying to find this middle ground that had strength to it. And to my mind, we did, we did well with this album. I was very happy with it. Do you have any idea where the connection in mood came, you know, between the main parts and then... Yes, it was. That was there right at the beginning. That was in the composition. Right from the beginning, I had this sort of sense of a kind of cartoon or something like that, an animation or something. You kind of go back a distance. So the, the thing's quite earthy, quite gutsy, and it's coming straight out of you. And if you take somebody else looking at that, it just looks like a show. It looks like a bit of a performance. All that was in there really right from the beginning. And once we got into this kind of dinosaur stuff as well, it kind of took on a kind of circus atmosphere. It was kind of like these two performing animals in us. I mean, we're all performing animals, aren't we, really? But, you know, these kind of performing animals in this bizarre dino circus. And the waltz is a kind of reminder that we're on show. It's a bizarre show that's taking place. The more we got into it, the more that waltz thing fitted. This is a section where you go back and forth between the 4-4 and the 3-4... I guess first, how are you just getting that tremolo violin? Is it just the combination of playing fast and bucket loads of delay and reverb to get that soup of, you know, that you're doing throughout that? No, it's not me. It's, I think, the producer, Dave's son, Jake Jackson. I think that's his idea. I think we had something there before that was playing that note, but I think he hit on the idea of the tremolo and I think he, he found a sample that he liked. So I think that's all his invention. I really like the idea of you can be musically adventurous as long as you're being theatrical, so that when it goes into the three, four sections there, it's either everything is going up and then everything is going down. And, you know, that telegraphs really clearly to the audience, even if, you know, you're not playing in a a regular key, you know, it's not appealing in the normal way, but it's appealing in the, we're doing weird theatrical stuff now, (laughs) you know. I find it hard to articulate why those things do kind of work, but I think you expressed it very well there. Yeah, it does flag something to the audience, doesn't it? It's a bit of a comfort. It says it's all right, really. <laughs> and it's probably okay to laugh at it as well. Well, but then it's going to start really kicking you. Let me play some of what I had labeled as the climax around 325 here, uh, which is also starts with a wall section here. I wasn't sure if you were just really compressing the drums or the cymbals were, <laughs> something was peaking or, or flattening, you know, like he's getting more excited than there was space for on the track. 
The drums, as I say, were recorded pretty much on a shoestring in one cupboard, <laughs> you know, and then at the other end of the scale was Jake Jackson, you know, who's one of the leading producers in the UK, does all the Doctor Who stuff and, you know, he works at Air Studios, George Martin Studio, and he's got everything at his fingertips at the other end, you know, so he decided to do whatever that was. David and I did our best. I just listened to some of the stuff that Jake had done and it was so good that we were delighted to get him on board to kind of finish things off. So if you don't like it, it's all his fault. I like it. It just has a, a, yeah. a very modern sheen to it in a way that if you were even recording with equal equipment like that in the 70s, that section in particular just invites comparisons to, okay, Bruford, you know, the kind of let's fit extra notes that we're kind of repeating the same thing, but really amping it up by just doing technically amazing things between every little bit in there. Craig certainly likes to get every little bit of energy <laughs> and micro spaces and God knows what in that he can. You know, he's fantastic. But the sound thing is probably higher than my pay grade to even comment on. So I won't expose my complete ignorance by going too far commenting on that bit. And then the bass in this, is he playing a five string, a six string? And it seems like there's some very low notes. <laughs> I think it's on the six string at the moment. He kind of seemed to be getting a new one every year at one stage. But he also is playing right up there in, um, you know, in the guitar, violin area as well. We do swap over at some stages. His response to not having a guitar in there is sublime, actually. I think that's one of the things that was very exciting about the album for David and I, really. You know, we started off with the two of us because we really didn't want that middle area crowded out with a guitar or, or even with pads and keyboards, and that's what we got. And then actually when Mick came into it as well, it kind of gained another dimension because he would be you know, suddenly popping up above you to play high on his instrument as well. And he's a very lyrical player, actually, when he starts playing high on his instrument. That really gave this extra dimension to the whole thing as well. When you've had David in some of your live shows, I watched one that was just the two of you, but have you brought in the whole band and, you know, to actually have a chordal instrument holding down since you can't, well, you can still double stop and he can still use his harmonizer, but like, do you feel that you needed something else to fill the gaps there? We never did it really. We, David and I did a kind of opener. We did a European tour where he, well, we were opening for the band and, and he was in the band as well. So, you know, it's like a duet, two people opening. But we didn't really try and get the bass and drums into that situation. I think because we wanted to just explore how, because we started off as a duo. We started doing gigs as a duo. In a live setting, just improv more and, and yeah. have that freedom. Uh, you know, and that we were enjoying a lot. When we started playing on our own, well, we started being able to use drum loops and things like that anyway, and that was working fine. We did want to do it, but just kind of never found the situation in which that might work. But, you know, that might happen in the future. I mean, are the electronics sort of an essential part of being able to, as two single-note instruments, non-chordal instruments, to be able to create something on the fly and have that fill up the sound, as opposed to having just two fighting bumblebees? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're both using loopers, and we, I think David rather better than me, really. And I use delays and things as well in order to build up textures. And on stage, we have a keyboard which either of us will play if we need to. So we, we do sometimes use that, but mostly we try and build it up through loops and delays. And it just does give us a backdrop. It would be probably a bit, bit too dry and bare without something like that going on. Before we go on, I want to do some ad reads. I've talked to you folks a lot on this podcast about Masterclass. 
hundreds of video lessons from more than 100 of today's most brilliant minds, available to you anytime, anywhere on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, etc. These are cinema quality classes, but you can also listen to them as podcasts, speed them up with your Masterclass annual all-access pass. You can really drill into one class or skip around. The class that was highlighted when I just went into the app is Neil deGrasse Tyson on Scientific Thinking Communication, which is very much like a podcast. It's 13 videos. The whole thing is only about two and a half hours long. And he is such an entertaining speaker. I just watched a lecture on cognitive bias, all the things that keep you and me from thinking clearly. So yes, you could open this app just about every day and find something pretty fun. Maybe I could improve my style with Tan France, teaches style for everyone. I could learn more physical control of myself as a performer by watching Samuel L. Jackson teach his acting. I could learn to better relate to an audience by watching Steve Martin teach his comedy. And of course, come on, the music classes. Questlove on music curation and DJing. St. Vincent on creativity and songwriting. Timbaland on producing and beat making. Carlos Santana on the art and soul of guitar. Herbie Hancock on jazz. The list goes on and on. The lessons all come with downloadable lesson recaps, supplemental materials, often sheet music for these music courses. This is something you can fit in your life, and an annual membership is only $180 a year. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a Nakedly Examined music listener, you get 15% off annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. I also want to tell you about the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. This is an easy way to add some luxury, relaxation, fanciness to your life, and you will get a lot of water savings out of it. This is a new revolutionary showerhead. It was developed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. They spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience. Here are two important numbers. 45%, which is how much less water used as compared to your typical shower. This thing will pay for itself in less than a year, better for the environment. But listen to this other number, 81%. That's how much more powerful the spray is than the competition. That is crazy. So either of these numbers would give you a sufficient reason for buying the thing. The fact that both of them go together is hard to believe, yet true. This is a powerful spray, atomized dropless, served to fill up the air, which is what makes it feel like a spa. Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. I did. So check it out. And while you're at the website, check out their other accessories, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats. They sent me one of the bath mats. It is super comfortable. All the stuff is extremely well designed and environmentally friendly. The Nebbia by Moen shower spa starts at just $199. And for Nakedly Examined Music listeners, we have a special deal for you. The first 100 people to use the code NEM at Nebbia.com will get 10% off all Nebbia products. Nebbia rarely does deals like this, so this is a great deal to jump on. Go to Nebbia.com slash NEM. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash NEM to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code NEM when checking out will save 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash NEM. Use that code NEM to save 10%. Let's get the second song on the table. So this is the full band, the David Cross band, Sign of the Crow, 2016, the last full band album. This is The Pool, one of the singles from it. We're going to play the full version, the nine-minute version. But there's not a lot of fat in this nine-minute version. Like, it, it's just 
a kind of a slow song that takes a while to state itself, but there's some soloing and things, but it's not a crazy prog sound chaser, you know, Tales of Topographic Ocean sort of <laughs> voyage. Like, no, it's very based on this nice melody that, you know, it's hard not to associate this with the lyricism of the ballads from that mid-70s Crimson period. And actually, this, so this is the first one we'll have lyrics on with Richard Palmer James bringing back the actual lyricist for that era of Crimson. Do you want to say a little about this song? And, you know, I know you've been working with him for a while. How does it, does he just send you lyrics or does he get involved after you've had the melody? We've always wanted Richard to just send us lyrics, actually, but he won't do it. Oh, not a Bernie <laughs> so, Taupin, okay. No, so, no, you send the tune. So that's the way we've always worked. You know, and it's been great. It's worked very well. I don't know why he doesn't want to work the other way. He does write some lovely stuff. We quite like working that way anyway. I mean, I like writing tunes. Can I ask you mechanically, what do you send him? You're playing the tune on violin and like put words to that part. I don't generally write on violin anyway. During this period before I became visible again, I was writing a lot of music for theatre. And I mean, I was just writing that by writing a score quite often or, you know, doing something on a keyboard. And also, I mean, I carried that forward when I started working with the band as well. I don't generally, there's one big exception, which we're going to play later, but generally I don't write on violin. I write a tune, I write for something I can vaguely hear that's outside me. If I could do it straight away, it wouldn't be worth doing somehow. I always love that feeling of reaching out for something that doesn't exist yet. I'm sure I fall short all the time, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to swim upstream to find something that where nobody's quite been before. And I certainly find places I've never been before. Actually, the pool is a place I haven't really been before. In writing theatre music, I'd learned to write nice tunes, nice chord sequences and all that. With this, I really wanted to kind of, in my mind, I was going right back to when I started and used to play in folk clubs a lot, about pre-Crimson. You know, there was a big folk scene all over the world. I mean, it was the late 60s, early 70s with the singer-songwriters. I really always found those things magical in the folk club when somebody would just be playing an accompaniment on guitar and then this lovely tune would emerge. And it's just the kind of simplicity of that. I just remember trans, you know, transporting me so many times. And I wanted to do something like that, but I'd never kind of got into that state of mind. But I finally did, I think, with this. I finally got hold, found that bit in me. Certainly, from a prog point of view, I mean, this is awful because you just play the same tune God knows how many times, as you said, over and over again. That's all that happens. It's ridiculous, you know, when people, you've got, you know, Craig can play any kind of time signature, any kind of modes or scales or whatever you throw at them. And you just like, just really want to do this tune really simply. But they, they just went for it and it's been great. It's one of those things that just worked also the first time. You know, whenever you write anything, you know, it's always best to kind of play them in front of people before you record them if you can. But there's always that moment just before you play it and you know, you know whether it's going to work or not. You have that moment as you're just about to start playing and you either go, oh, no, this is, going to, this is not going to work. Or, well, like with this one, ah, oh, this is going to work. You know, every time we play it, every time this manages to transport me somewhere else. And it's a great joy to share that with people and share in that experience with people.
face and a stranger's heart falling apart out of the blue into the new guess who in the world waits for you. so when you do this live I could picture this being a closer, but then I cannot picture, say, Craig on drums being this restrained if this was actually going to be the closer. Okay, we're repeating this for the fourth time. Can I add in those extra notes? I was really surprised by the very end of this tune, you know, that it's been so long and it's just, no, we're just going to go back to, there's no stinger, there's no, the whole band roars in, it's just got the little cymbal shimmer that, you know, has happened many times in the song and that's it. That's what's going to punctuate the end. Not even a big... Ta-da, you no. know. <laughs> it's a triumph of good taste. <laughs> no, we didn't use to finish with it, by the way, no. It's always kind of at the heart of the set, so it's kind of, you know, somewhere in the middle when you want to break people's hearts and then you've got them on your side and then you, you do something awful after it. You know, we come into something really... Play 21st century schizoid man and... Yeah, if it was near the end, that's where that would come next, yeah. You destroy it all. <laughs> So I saw, in addition to Richard Palmer James doing lyrics, that Mick Paul, your bassist, and Paul Clark, your guitarist, so they're the missing element of the band from the last tune, are co-writers on this. I mean, in terms of, you knew it was going to be an acoustic guitar thing, but was it actually Paul that then made it an acoustic guitar thing? You know, actually came up with that particular riff. Yes, I think it was. But by that state, with this particular album, we'd kind of agreed anyway that we wanted to share the you know, those writing credits anyway, because it just makes it easier if you're not competing for something, if you're just saying, okay, look, we just pick whatever works because it works. You know, it's a better way to relate to people anyway. But yes, I think he created that from what I remember. Always Paul creates something better than I can ever conceive anyway. So that was him again. It's funny, those are the things that make him nervous. He's a lovely guitar player. You know, and he can shred and do all the wonderful solos and things like that. But the things where I see him shaking <laughs> on stage is when we're about to do something like that. So those arpeggio things. And I don't know why. He always does them beautifully. <laughs> but, you know, somewhere in his past, somebody must have said, oh, you can't do that or something. And it made him nervous. But uh, he does it. It's lovely. Well, and it's not like you architected his guitar solo. So about four minutes in, where you've been soloing a little, mostly just doing the melody, playing the tune. And then he takes, and when I first heard this, I was like, this is a little cheesy. But now I just, like, it really pulls at my 14-year-old air guitar <laughs> heartstrings in terms of... <laughs> now that, that's all, Paul. It's absolutely wonderful to me. I just, once he'd done it, I couldn't think of anything else to go in there. And, and it had to be that. It's very different from me. I kind of tend to play a different thing every time. I'm uh, you know, constantly improvising. Um, if ever I've got to do you know, a video of something I've done, it's impossible because I've, I've improvised it and then I've got to learn the damn thing and it's too complicated. But he works things. He works solos. He'll start with something improvised and then build it up, build it up, and build it up. Once he's got it right, he sticks with it. And this is one of those. It's a beautiful solo. Let me play a little of your solos.
Yeah, and especially that bend that you end with. Like, it, it sounds very guitar-influenced. I mean, can you say a little about sort of how your violin rock soloing style has evolved over the years here? When I started on violin, I listened to other people, obviously people like, you know, Jean-Luc Ponty, and I think it was um, Sugar Cane Harris, I think, the violin player that I, that I really did like. He was a really bluesy player. But, you know, I quickly felt that violinists weren't the people that were kind of exciting me as much as, uh, well, guitarists, you know, and sax players, right from the early times. I mean, obviously, John Coltrane, you know, was very, very exciting. Working with Robert Fripp, of course, was incredible. And I learned so much just from listening to him play, watching him play, you know, seeing how he coped with things, you know, going right and going wrong. One of the things that's funny about his style and, and like Steve Hackett and other folks that I really like is they're trying to sound like a violin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm probably doing it better sometimes. <laughs> One of the things that worked for us uh, when I was in King Crimson, you know, as, as during my time with them, things just got noisier and noisier, and the kind of the space for nice, quiet violin solos and things and subtle rhythms increasingly got lost. But one of the things that always worked was what they, we just used to call the long line or the long duo, and it was just Robert playing violin lines and, and me playing on a violin doing the same kind of thing and weaving together, that always worked. I just so much preferred his pseudo-violin line, if you want, to mine, that I kind of tried to pinch his sound as much as I could, because I, I really liked that. Well, as part of that, do you play acoustic violin much anymore? I've just seen you, I would think from a practical stage perspective, not having to worry about a mic on a wooden thing, you know? Well, a couple of things happened. Once I trod on it, <laughs> the, one, like, the one I had with Crimson was acoustic. And I carried on working with that. And I was working in community theatre and I was doing a pantomime or something and I had the violin down and play a bit of that and I had to conduct the band. And I trod on my violin, I broke the neck off. And I mean, that's not the kind of thing you do when you're used to being around your instrument for a long time. You just don't do that. So, you know, I took that as a very kind of Freudian slip. <laughs> that was maybe I'd had enough of it for a while. It did kind of make me think. It just forced me to think, is this what I want to do? Do I want to play the violin? You know, I played a bit of keyboards as well. Do I want to do that? And eventually I decided I did. But it was definitely electric violin when I got into it. And I found progressively, as I came to terms with the electric violin and started to make it my own and get my own sound, I became worse and worse at being able to play acoustic violin, you know, and I would kind of use it a bit for teaching. And, and increasingly I found, you know, I was not able to get a decent sound out of it. You know, I'd play something and, and my students would look at me and say, did you get that wrong? <laughs> you really sounding like that? It was pretty bad. And so I kind of finally pretty much gave up on that. And my life's been much better since then in terms of my relationship with the instrument. Yeah, I absolutely love electric violin now and I'm trying to develop a new hybrid instrument with a violin maker in this country at the moment, David Bruce Johnson. I use a thing, he, he, uh, an instrument called a V-Electra that, that he's made. The playability of it is wonderful. He's got machine heads back at this end rather than, you know, pegs at that end. He's also spaced out the strings. I mean, he's a five string, but he's spaced out the strings just enough that it's much cleaner to play. Usually they try and force the five strings into the sort of space of a four string and it gets very cluttered. But he's opened it out and just makes the playability of the instrument so much better. So you add a low string, right, to give your... Yeah, yeah, it's like a viola, viola stroke violin. And then I've got a nice octave pedal now and that drops the whole thing down into cello range. I saw so. that when doing live and, it, you know, remarkably accurate. 
I interviewed Julie Slick, who was a bass player for another Crimson offshoot. And just the fact that she's using electronics that bass is the thing I learned to play, but I don't have to play bass notes. You know, that you can just play anything you want. It's fine. So you feel it's just an octave or do you feel like you now have have conquered the tonal space? What I haven't conquered is the transition, actually. I can get a, a good cello sound. But I mean, I've started trying to do kind of when I practice, trying to do scales that join them up. So I'll go up in the cello range and then try and transit. But I haven't been working on it now, but I haven't been able to transit the sound successfully yet. There's a tonal quality that changes because I have to drop that pedal out. And then I switch to playing the on kind of as if I were a viola and it kind of it lurches at that point. So at the moment, they're still working for me as two separate instruments. I can either play my cello violin or I play my violin violin in terms of sound and they're kind of separate. And I would like to because it would be really nice to go boom and yeah and really jump that gap. Well, I suppose the limiting factor is that you're still dealing with the acoustic sound of the violin as opposed to what I was just describing with with Julie, where she's basically triggering a synth pad, you know, that could be anything. So what is your default effect, say, in this song, when you start doing the melody? Is it just reverb and you're trying to, you know, get as much as that straight violin sound as possible? Or is there some chorus in there by default? Again, I'm, ch- I'm changing constantly. So there's no default. It's <laughs> Well, I, I had a very stupid default really for a long time, which was a lot of reverb. And I still have patches with where I've got a controllable reverb. The problem is that you're working with what you're hearing. And so if I was not hearing myself properly, one of the things that go flat down would be all the reverb and actually it just made things worse. But I could probably hear it a bit better. Things would sound too dry to me on stage and I put too much reverb on. So that was a bad avenue to go down. I mean, I love distortion. I love using a kind of fuzz effect. I, I love that. What I'm using at the moment that's kind of has been working for me is kind of half second delay. It's an attempt to kind of emulate the body of the of, a, of an acoustic instrument, I suppose. But I've gone beyond that now. I've got a Stradivarius in a box now. Let me just play one last little section from here. So this is 458 in where the guitar is harmonizing you, where you're taking the melody that lets you really do that, you know, dual guitar thing that shows how your sound actually works with this. Yeah, that those just mesh so well that it could just be two guitars, but you're allowing some flexibility, you know, given how slow it is, with that he can add some extra trills or you can add some extra, you know, you can have a little bit of difference, but it still has that very locked in. Uh, I mean, I remember talking about this, about when we played this on stage. I think some people are amazed how much we work at trying to get that sympathy, that empathy together, you know. We uh, watch each other's fingers. He's looking at my vibrato. You know, I'm looking at his bending. We're kind of listening, looking, feeling it through it. You don't just play it and it works. You work it. That's one of the joys of playing with, with good players like Paul is that they're tracking you and you're tracking them. Well, let's move to an older iteration of this band. Different singer, different drummer. Awful Love from the album Closer Than Skin 2005. I was reading that this was the album that kind of, you'd had some solo band things, but like this one sort of hit the spot where you kind of, this is my sound going forward. Can you say a little about this period and this song we're about to hear before we hear it? When I started off, we didn't have guitar, for instance. And then as things moved on, we got guitar in, we got 
working with Paul Clark, and that became kind of a fundamental part of the sound. And, you know, we were setting out to write coherent, you know, rock songs, and I suppose there's this kind of metal edge to it, so it's kind of prog metal or something like that. The other thing that was going on a lot, which is in this track, is loops. We, we, people were starting to use a lot more loops around that time. There's a, I think there's a fairly poppy drum loop that we used on this. And then the drummer, a guy called Del Lloyd, who's a fantastic player, lives in the south of England near to me. He was using a rolling kit, electronic drum kit, and he kind of created his own sounds on that. We kind of meshed those in with this drum loop. A lot of the sounds he were getting were quite in at that time, and they kind of support, they work well with the bass. So that's kind of how that it was kind of bass guitar drums were finding a thing that was starting to work. Yeah, unexpectedly danceable and funky in the chorus here. Given how dark and Eastern this main <laughs> violin riff and the vocal line sounds. So you said you actually wrote this one on violin, that this was an exception. Yeah, that's right. It was an exception, yeah. And just going back a tiny bit, I mean, I think I believe always that there ought to be something that people can hang on to. We didn't see the point in playing music in which there was nothing to hang on to. Maybe we've gone too far, maybe there's too much to hang on to in this, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, this actually started from Dio, 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 Dio. It was, yeah, it was actually a violin riff, and it's very unusual. We were probably doing quite a lot of jamming at that time, so it's probably something that I played in rehearsal and some said, oh, that sounds interesting, you know, let's see how that works. Because I had a couple of riffs, so there's a dirty, and I'm, dirty, and woof, and the hands slide up and down the violin. Playing in fifths again, use a lot of that. Yeah, I think I got that first riff, and people seemed to, that seemed to work okay. And then I think I developed the other second riff that went with it to try and keep it in the violin. It's unusual. I mean, I'm not very good at time. I'm not, you know, I'm not a rhythm player. My sense of where the bar line is, I've never cared about that. You know, get there early, get there late. It all sounds good. You know, having to be the one holding things down isn't really my style. So I, I guess that's why quite often that, you know, I, I don't formulate riffs and, and hold on to them. I'm just not very good at it. But this one seemed to hit the spot. Once we got that loop in, it started to really work.
Yes, very nice, aggressive, really something to just grab onto right from the start there. Once you're doing that, I guess that Eastern melody just rolled off, or was this one of your co-writers that was contributing that much to it? Can you say a little how, how the collaboration worked on this one? The romantic section yes. we're in now. Yeah, I can't remember. Okay, <laughs> can't well, that's remember fine. I, I'm happy to take credit for all of it, but I suspect da, 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 the notes are liable to be mine or part of them, but the chords are liable not to be. I can't remember. Da, da, da. The harmony, any harmony stuff is probably not mine. We were probably hacked it out in the studio together. That tune would have been created before Richard got near it. So, you know, that had a life all of its own. So the romance was in there, the kind of warmth or whatever that's in there was was in there at that point and the angularity around it. Then he came in with the tune. And then is it always the actual singer? So Arch Stanton in this case, and in the last one, it was... Ginny and Wilde. Right, okay. Is that just the last thing to be added? Mm, it does tend to be, yeah, to my shame. Although the singer doesn't have to hang out while you're working out every... <laughs> all the... Well, you know, this is also an evolving situation, you know, because working now with Gin in, you know, in a different capacity, much more kind of integrated. But yeah, Gin seemed quite happy to come along, sing a bit, then disappear off, banging the tambourine, running around, smiling, keep dancing on stage. Well, we got on with the meat and potatoes of the, <laughs> the proggy rock. <laughs> then he'd come back and sing a tune at the end. And he always seemed happy to do that, but it kind of gradually dawned on me that it didn't seem to do justice to him either. Arch and him are both great singers. And I think it's just because when I started back on the road to visibility, I think we started off as an instrumental group, quasi-jazz instrumental, and then gradually put a guitar in and then maybe even more grudgingly put a singer in and then actually as they came in started to enjoy the whole thing more i kind of feel certainly about both these singers actually that we didn't use them nearly enough in these albums i think maybe more on on sign of the crow we had a bit of space for Jin to do wonderful kind of multiple vocals but um yeah it was one last one to hear about anything well this one at least you know we do have harmonized vocals through the choruses to thicken that out and that Eastern, you know, that's the first, you know, of course, being in a sort of crimson mindset, approaching all this stuff. Some of the earlier stuff sounds more like this could be a John Wetton melody, but this one is the only one that actually sounds like it could be an Adrian Blue melody, like some of those particular way he's sweeping up. But that's just when you're trying to sing something that was probably written on violin or that is purposefully trying to be not a nice melodic like into the pool, which just rolls off your voice like as if you just wrote it there singing and strumming. Whereas this one is more of a, you know, we're trying to do something that is hitting trying a, to do something a, a bit different. Yes, yeah, it is. There's some very unexpectedly once you've got guitar in the band whether it's just different guitar distortion technologies since the 70s. Like Red has been called a proto heavy metal album, but like there's definite to the point of, I don't know if you know the band like Opeth, but you know, these bands that are prog bands, but that have, you know, <laughs> the, the Cookie Monster vocal and the heavy guitar. And that's an interesting element to add. So just 41 seconds in, it was kind of startling to me to hear this rhythm guitar sound here.
that that's full on metal headbanging. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It seems like it just comes from a different sociological place than the violin or something. Yeah, I think Crimson was in a part of what we did in my in our time was definitely, I think, heavy metal. And I think, you know, a lot of Robert's sounds were like that. Yeah. I, think- I guess it's the sort of deep purple is the being the connecting tissue between prog and metal there. I'm not good at guitars either, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have an accountant who's a guitarist, and every time I come in, he wants to show me his guitars and talk about his guitars and don't know anything about them. He's always terribly disappointed. Play you one other guitar section then, which is definitely a particular Crimson song, but I can't remember, think of which has invaded just for this chord. That's a direct quote from Lark's Tongues and Aspic Part 2. Okay, there you go. It's, it's the introduction <laughs> to that, yeah. No, it was meant to be just a little reference to the past, a little thank you. So I, I think that's Paul playing that, I think. I think he just copied it, yeah. Well, and that gives you the opportunity to do your you know, most blistering violin solo that we have yet had on this interview that really is just doing Flight of the Bumblebee levels of... It is Flight of the Bumblebee, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was advice from Paul. He's... he's <laughs> I remember he said, um, you know, because sometimes you have conversations like, you know, what should I be doing now to get better? You know, how do I get better on this? And he said, we'll try and play something that's very difficult to play, like Flight of the Bumblebee. So I had a look at Flight of the Bumblebee and it was much too hard for me to play. But So this is my feeble attempt to try to do my rock version of it. Yeah, it is the Flight of the Bumblebee gone wrong. The fact that that and the heavy metal stuff is in the same song as we haven't actually talked about the chorus here. Let me just play a little bit. The way you were describing that... I'd do anything for love. <laughs> yes. You were describing that as the... That was the infusion of the rhythm players, you know, working out that little funky thing together. Does Richard have any vocal... Uh, you know, I know uh, the cigarettes, ice cream thing. Like, there are some things that Fripp would insert that before it got to the lyricist. Did you expect it to be something as sort of straight ahead as I'd do anything for love in this section? Or was that... With Richard, I just act out of complete faith, actually. <laughs> I always expect him to come up with, with the unexpected or with the totally appropriate but slightly twisted, and he always does it. I'm not sure I ever understand his lyrics. They're always open to you know, at least 75 interpretations. You know, We've never agreed in the band what, what any of the lyrics mean. You know, there seem to be different things. The singer doesn't have to understand. No, no, not at all, <laughs> not at all. Actually, the thing I'm progressively realising about lyrics is that the music actually is so much more powerful than the lyrics. Even when it's just totally a song, you actually could be singing about something that runs totally against what the music is. The music will win. The music somehow will do its magic and will work with or despite the lyrics. I think it's really interesting. I mean, we, you know, we have conversations together about you know, what the things mean and it, just totally different ideas. And it doesn't matter. I just really, you know, it's kind of, I, I thought one stage that maybe we all ought to be on board, you know, message-wise, we all ought to be agreeing on what the pool is about or what awful love is about. But I'm kind of starting to dawn on me that it doesn't matter at all. It really is. The music does its work. It generates the activity. It generates the meaning in the listener. and. So the fact that the pool seems to be about, by the end, like an invitation to 
oblivion. But it's, you know, this very nicely, it's euthanasia or something rather yeah, than... I'm, I'm with you on that. That's what it seems <laughs> to me as well. But Jin's always saying it's about transformation. It's about change. It's about becoming something else, you know, which is kind of Buddhisty, I suppose. But, you know, I think he has a different take on it from how you or I might. Well, I can see why Richard might not want to do lyrics first, because in this song, at least, in Awful Love, that contrast, like why I'd do anything for love is not a big cheese fest, is because you've had this very dark thing like that is already kind of spelled out what anything might entail <laughs> that a little bit so that it does not just become a disco song and stay there. It goes back and forth. And actually, how does it end? That's a weird kind of theatrical ending for what's happening right before that, which is, was he playing Ebo? Do you know that just to get that super sustain, that violin like tone that he's playing on guitar while you saw away and do the rhythm? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't know what he's doing. Might just be a lot of us. distortion. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not that hard to get. But then the fact that you do this repetitive riff thing at the end, yeah, what can you say a little about? Do you remember what the decision process was that there from the start or was that something that evolved with the band? I think that's very much a band thing. I think that's just where we got to. You know, sometimes it's stuff like, you know, the tape running out or somebody having to leave early or something like that. And that's the point you finished at. And actually, oh, that sounds good. I think it had to finish up in the air somehow. It had to finish kind of inconclusively. And I think it does that. It's the rhythm. It's all for love, all for love. It's all for love, awful love. It's all for love, all for love. Ah, and it's gone. There we are. Well, let's. And moving toward wrapping this up, I wanted to have you talk a little more about, we talked about the band stuff and how that developed, but then a lot of your output is these collaborations. So we've heard the David Jackson one, but that's still, you were saying that the rhythm players were added after the fact, but it, the result is that it sounds like a continuation of the band project, even if though you don't have the guitar and the vocal in there still. So we're going to wrap up with one that you did with Peter Banks, which I see was just you two jamming together over a day and it seems like that might be the more typical i don't know you've done a couple with andrew keeling who's on flute so another sort of two instruments but both of you are composers i don't know if you want to, want to generalize or you know are these a lot of these collaborations just i went over to somebody's house one day and we <laughs> just did something and it became a, like that would be the jazz man way of creating albums that you know miles davis every time he would breathe like oh there's a new thing there's a new album <laughs> It is and it isn't. Going around having a jam is, yes, that is absolutely the, the basis of it. But there was a thing which, which for me started with, I didn't think about until Crimson, and it's to do with the way we started to create material when we got into the second album, Starless, which was to do with taking improvs, improvisations, and then composing around them, something I call back composing. So something's kind of there, but it needs a bit more. So then you compose around it or you loop a bit of it or you, you kind of create it. And it, I was really particularly with Andrew and then with Peter Banks, really into that, exploring that idea. And Andrew was quite taken with it as well. So when we did our album English Sun together, that was, that was a big feature. So we would improvise and that would be kind of raw stuff. And then we would say, well, what out of this... What else can we do to just lift this? And that's one of the ways that we were working. With Peter Banks, all we had was that jam session. 
because we did the jam session, we kind of both quite busy and, you know, we didn't get back together to take it forwards. He then died and I couldn't even bring myself to listen to this for a couple of years because, you know, people improvising, it's, it's very exposed stuff. It's, it's very raw stuff. And I found it really quite, to even think about it, quite emotional. But I did come back to it and, and of course, he wasn't there to work it out with. He wasn't there to play with, you know, I, you know, David and I did a lot of this, David Jackson and I did a lot of this, and he was with me and we worked it out together, and it's a great thing of creating together. But, of course, Peter was gone. I started working on it on my own, and I didn't like it. I didn't feel all the gaps, all the things that have kind of emerged from our conversation today, all my ignorance you know, about guitars and things like that would come up. And I thought, well, Peter would know what to do here, and, I, and actually I don't. Uh, I can do this, but I don't want it to just be me. So I got a hold of Tony Lowe, who'd done all the mixing on Starless Starlight, which is another album, The Collaboration with, with Robert Fripp. He'd helped create that and made it fuller and richer. So he did a, an immense amount of work on these little improvisations, turning them into kind of proper pieces and constructing. We'd done some stuff with time, you know, just with the drum, click, click, drum track. Okay, I was wondering with that, for the, for the bringing in the drummers, like, if it was truly a freeform improv, like, how is this even possible? But okay, I see. Yeah, some, somewhere, but um, so I think about three quarters of the mile, I think we had time going through it. So we had that as a, at least as a starting point. So something was in time. So Tony worked from that and he created drum parts, bass parts. Well, yeah, it became a prog supergroup of sorts, you know, with a lot of other people associated with Yes. The song that I picked from this, the title track, Crossover, doesn't have any of that. It's just the two of you. I mean, was there at least some, like, a lot of affecting of his guitar after the fact? Or was he playing live through those effects? Do you recall? I, I'd have to listen to it. It's a long time. I kind of never listen to anything. If I, once it's gone, it's gone. So I'd have to check it well, out. Well, there's some brilliant delays on the guitar. It's not even obviously guitar. Like, it's not like his style jumps out because he's playing through some pretty thick effects. He had a new pedal that mm. day. I know that, that he was trying out. So I think there was a lot of the stuff, I think that probably would have come from him initially. We'll play it in just a minute here. So this is, uh, again, Peter Banks, the original guitarist for Yes, just the two of you doing this on Crossover. Anything before we say goodbye else you want to plug? What are you working on right now? Well, with David Crossband is doing, um, just finishing off a new album, which includes some songs that we played before. So there are two Crimson songs on it, Starless and There's Exiles. But these are songs that we have just approaching in a different way from the way we've done them before. And there's also then a couple of tunes from another day that we've turned into songs that Ginian is singing now. And then a couple of old compositions that we've totally reworked. So David is part of the band now? Is that? No. No. Okay. All right. David was part of the band and then moved out. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so it's a smaller unit now. Anyway, it's all new stuff. And one of the main things that we're doing in this is we've recorded a conversation that we had about 40 minutes worth of chat. And that kind of is feeding in and out of this music as well. So what I'm trying to explore in this is the whole thing of basically music is the people involved in making it. So this is kind of trying to explore where those boundaries are. You know, where do the where do the people stop and the music starts? And this whole thing I was getting at earlier about the power of the music is it just music is just so powerful. You know, and sometimes it's just totally at odds. 
You see these people who are kind of obviously completely, you know, neurotic, mad, disorientated, God knows what, you know, and then suddenly, you know, they're playing something absolutely beautiful, sublime together, and totally on task, you know, and then you ask them, you know, which way is the stage at the end, and then no idea, and <laughs> don't know what's going on. And there's this kind of disconnect somehow between the people with the R, which are often a complete mess, <laughs> a lot of musicians, and the richness of the world that we're allowed to inhabit when we make music. So it's kind of exploring what the hell that's all about. So I don't know quite how it's ending up, but it's kind of, it's all, we've recorded all the songs, we've mixed them, and I'm just, and I've done links to all these link parts, and we're just trying to make it make a bit more sense at the moment. So that's, that's the big one coming up. I've also done another album with Andrew Keeling called October is Marigold, which is, we'd recorded one track already, and we've recorded a whole lot more now. And that's beautiful, beautiful flute, keyboard, violin, very simple and lovely stuff, some harshness in there, but it's very, very lyrical piece of work. So I'm very... Please, that's going to come out this year as well. So those two things. Not bad for a pandemic year to get. <laughs> Not bad for a pandemic year. I don't like it at all. I know nobody does, but people think, you, you know, if in a pandemic, a musician is just going to get on and produce wonderful work, but. You know, it's the people. If you're not meeting the people and sitting down and looking them in the eye and smelling their sweat and their smelling your fear and all this, it's not happening. We're not, this is still a disconnect. We need, you know, Zoom plus if we're going to have to keep working this way. I find it very, I'm probably too old to adapt. You know, I really do need people. I do need touch and that kind of stuff. Old school human. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure talking to you. Mark. Yeah, it's been it's been really great. Thanks a lot. All right, here's crossover.
Thanks so much to David. Longtime listeners will know of my love for those 70s King Crimson albums. We talked about another song in there with Bill Bruford quite a while ago here, but I was not at all aware of his voluminous solo work and collaborations. I hope you check out some of that. Have a look at davidcrossband.com. I should also mention he was on a very good live album, Stick Men, featuring David Cross. That album is 2016's Midori. Marcus Reuter, my past guest, being a member of Stickmen. So as usual, I will link to some of the live material and other things that we didn't get to cover here on the blog post associated with this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure, if you enjoy this, that you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music Podcast and not just listening on the Partially Examined Life feed. If you really like this, you'd probably like to see my notes on these songs. Sort of chart everything out. I've got the lyrics. You can see what stylistic elements, arrangement elements I had picked out that I used for this. I post a link to those notes with my posting for this episode on patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. And you'll get those if you support me at any level. And I know it's difficult to justify putting money into not only the music industry at all, but into somebody like me who is merely talking about, talking with, promoting things in the music industry. But I assure you, this thing barely makes a profit from the commercials. I would really urge all regular listeners to go in and sign up for however small a per-episode donation you can afford. It could be a quarter. That'd be fine. Just get on the list. Show that you are a supporter. My next episode will be with Rob Abernethy. Amazing guitarist has done a lot of video game soundtracks. Then Josh Caterer from Smoking Popes. And then I most recently talked to the Irish singer-songwriter, former singer of Micro Disney and the Fatima Mansions, Cahill Coughlin. Hope you come back. Thanks for listening. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.